Well, good morning. We're going to continue in our miracle series. A couple sermons in. It's been good. Good to think about God working in impossible ways. Spoiler alert, He's God. That's always how He works. But for us, we're not God. And so we appreciate when God works in unexpected ways, incredible ways, um, ways of deliverance. So it's been good for us to think through these miracles and, and those that are yet coming in, in the series. Today, as we think about miracles, a couple of related questions in some ways, but questions that are very often in conflict. The first question is, what do you want? What do you want? I want blank. Second question, what do you need? Sometimes those questions are really related, but sometimes they're, they're worlds apart, right? What do I want? What do I need? Don't, don't we experience this when we just go to the store? And I don't think it helps in, in our advanced society where we can go to a store where we can buy milk and a lawnmower, right? Like you go into the, like when I was a kid and you went to the store, mom or dad would say, listen, I'm just going to run in for a couple things we need, which meant, you know, I can't wander into whatever aisle. But now it's like you go for a loaf of bread and you're like, I could really use that riding mower. I know what I want. I know what I need. Worlds apart sometimes. Online, online shopping's like that, isn't it? Um, have you ever just clicked your way into a black hole? Like, how did I get here? Um, like, it, with hobbies, it's like that, shopping online. You know, for me, I like to fish. So let's say, let's say I need, like, to buy hooks, special hooks for fishing, okay? So I log on to this site that has, you know, every conceivable fishing hook you could buy in the world. Within 10 minutes, I'm on a website about a fishing lodge for sale in Saskatchewan. And I'm like, that's what I really want. I'd like to run that. I wonder how much that costs. What do you need? What do you want? Two questions that sometimes have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Today, in this sermon, here's the big idea. Remember this. I often, I often know what I want. God knows what I need. Always, friend. I know what I want. God knows what I need. Pastor and author J.D. Greer writes, to really know God, we have to be willing for him to say some things that we don't want to hear. He has to make us mad and confuse us sometimes because only then can we hear from him the things we desperately do want to hear. I would say the things we need to hear. Greer goes on to quote theologian Karl Barth. Bart said, if our God never contradicts us or makes us mad, then we are likely not worshiping him but a reflection of ourselves. If, if our God never contradicts us or makes us mad, then we are likely not worshiping him but a reflection of ourselves. You know what you want? God knows what you need. Last week in the sermon, if you were here, Jeff I thought effectively wove into his sermon a personal story of how God worked in the life of uh, his and Carolyn's daughter, Melissa, after a, a, a tragic accident with a, with a softball and how God delivered her. If you weren't here, you can go back online, lifeofpathway.com slash media. 
and there's all the sermon content. You can listen to that sermon and hear that story of how God worked and, and delivered Melissa. Pretty powerful story he wove into the sermon. And I don't know, as I sat there and listened to that, I thought, and I'm thinking this morning, it's likely we each have those kind of stories, right? Where God showed up in an incredible way. Where, again, he's God, so that's always how he shows up. Nothing is impossible. But many of us, I'm sure, as we sat there and listened to that story, and again, I'd encourage you to go back and listen if you didn't. But in that story of deliverance, we can think of times, God met me there. God did this. Wow, how God showed up. I knew what I wanted. God showed up. We all have those stories. My family certainly has a story like that. Let me tell you about, let me tell you about John and Florence Fry. That's my mom and dad in the 1960s, man. They were living the American dream as much as you could live the American dream in the 1960s. I mean, they had two beautiful children. My, my oldest sister, Marie, I, it wasn't me yet. My, my, my oldest sister, Marie, my older brother, Andy, and uh, they lived out in eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, my, my dad had a tremendous job, had been working nearly a decade at a, for a power company out there, really good job. They, they lived in a community they grew up in. They were surrounded by extended family, like many of us. Surrounded by mom and dad, you know, Sunday dinners with parents, with brothers and sisters and siblings, and life was rich and full and good and perfect. And my, my sister Marie got a diagnosis, aplastic anemia. John Hopkins, John Hopkins describes aplastic anemia as a form of bone marrow failure. It is primarily a disease of children and younger adults, but can occur at any age. Typically, as old blood cells die off naturally, they are replaced by new blood cells formed in the bone marrow. In aplastic anemia, the bone marrow does not produce new cells, leaving the body susceptible to bleeding and infection. This was my sister Marie's diagnosis at five years of age in the 60s. Man, I'll tell you what, my parents, they knew what they wanted, right? How hard is it? They want a miracle for Marie. They want her healed. Pretty easy. They knew what they wanted. God knew what they needed. I know what I want. God knows what I need. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at an incredible story. I want to read this text together, so follow along. Mark 5, and if you're in the worship center... And uh, welcome into Moon Campus. Welcome into my people in the response venue, the best venue at Pathway. Welcome to you guys. Uh, especially without me there, that's probably what they're thinking. But anyway, uh, in your venue or in the seats in front of you is a Bible. On the Version app are some notes in that worship program that was mentioned earlier. Notes there, follow along, listen in. Mark chapter 5. Okay, we're going to have to deal with two things. I'm going to read this. We're going to have to deal with two things right off the bat. Demons, that's always exciting, and discrepancies. Okay, demons, discrepancies. So let me read it, and then we'll talk. Mark 5, 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and he told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. The word of God. God knows what we need, even though we know what we want. Let's talk about that from this text. We said right off the bat we got to deal with some things. Demons, what do we do with demons? I believe demons are real. I believe that on the authority of the Bible. Um, two things. Romans 8 says this. We are, if you're in Christ, you're more than a conqueror. So we're conquerors, Christian friend. Demons, demons have no sway over us. In the power of Christ, we are conquerors. We are careful, though right? We are careful with that kind of stuff. Ephesians 6, 12 says, among the things we struggle against as Christians is this, the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Demons are not something to play with. So it's interesting because they're in this story. Discrepancies. Let's deal with those. Geographically, where did this take place? There's a lot of viable alternatives related to the particular region and town that fit this narrative, and that's something if you look online, there's a lot of interesting uh, study done about that, exactly where this happened geographically. The bigger discrepancy is that this story appears in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're in Mark. In Matthew's Gospel, there are two men. In Mark and Luke's Gospel, there is one man. We're reading about one man. Why? Well, I'm not sure. Um, Again, there's a lot written about these discrepancies. Uh, a couple things are, there are manuscript issues at play, which you can read all about. If you want some information, let me know. It's very interesting. Um, some have noted that uh, Mark and Luke don't say there was only one. 
another, another strong case is to be made for the fact that the man who is more animated is the man who is focused on in Mark and in Luke. But I want to put those out there, those discrepancies that they are there and that they are dealt with. So, so these demons, some of these discrepancies make this story that much more interesting. It's a miracle, though. Miracle? Certified miracle. Uh, a self-mutilating, indecently exposing himself man who is filled with demons becomes a calm-clothed missionary. Miracle. I want us to look at four questions together from this miracle. When we ask them, when we ask these questions, I think as we, as we look at this miracle, I think when we ask these four questions, when we ask them, in our minds, we know what we want. When I ask these questions reading this miracle, I know what I want. God knows what we need. So four questions I want to pull out of the miracle. First question is this. The first question I see in the beginning of the context is this. How long, O Lord? That might be the... That might be the question you came in today to Pathway asking. How long, O Lord? It is the cry of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Friend, what's your sorrow? What's your struggle? Did you come in today saying, God, how much longer? God, how much longer do I have to deal with this? God, when will you come? When will you show up in this mess? It's interesting in this story as it begins, what one one note is this that's made in verses 1 and 2. Uh, so let's look at that again, 1 and 2. They, Jesus, the disciples, they went across the lake. See that? They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. They went from a Jewish region to a Gentile region where Jesus had never gone before. The chief concern of Mark and Luke, one writer says, is that Jesus crossed over into Gentile territory. How big is that? Big! Big Jesus is among the Jews and he's dealing with that. He... He, as it were, wakes up in the morning and says, guys, we're going across the lake. We're going across where we've never gone before. Uh, the, the, the New English Bible translates the parallel passage, Luke 8, 26, like this. So they sailed over to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Jesus said, guys, we're, we're not staying where we normally stay. We are going over there. Maybe you're here today, friend, and here's your question. Jesus, when are you going to come across? Uh, Jesus, when, when are you going to get out of the boat and step onto the soil of my sorrow? You see that in 1 and 2? They went Jesus said, we're going to go across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when they got out of the boat, are you here today saying, how long, O Lord? Lord, when... Lord, as it were, Jesus, when are you going to get up and say, I need to go across to the, to the soil of the sorrow of that problem? Jesus, that's me. How long, Lord? How long, till you, how long till you come across the lake to the opposite side to my problem and step out of your boat into the soil of my sorrow? How long, oh Lord? All of us have asked that question at one time or another. How long, oh Lord? Jesus, when are you going to come across? Jesus, when are you going to get out of the boat? Philip Yancey, Brenda Quinn, right? I think of God's style as ironic. A more straightforward approach would respond to each new problem with an immediate solution. A woman gets sick, God heals her. 
A man is falsely imprisoned, God releases him. Rarely. Rarely does God use such an approach, however. He is an author of great subtlety. He lets the plot line play out in perilous ways. Then he ingeniously incorporates all of those apparent details into the root home. Okay, but God, I thought you'd be here by now. When are you going to come across, Jesus? When are you going to step out of your boat and into the soil of my sorrow? I wonder what that is for you. Chronic pain? Grief? That you're dealing with years after? Doubt? Just this cloud of depression that's over your head. And How long, O oh Lord? Jesus, please come across. Come to my side. Step out of your boat into the soil of my sorrow. I will meet you immediately. How long, oh Lord? Job knew this. This is what he said in Job 19. Job 19, verse 25 Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. In Hebrews 4, this is the description of Jesus. He's a high priest. He's not a high priest who is unable to sympathize, empathize with our weaknesses. Hey, friend, if you're here and you're asking this first question, how long, O Lord, May I encourage you, as it were, to tattoo across your mind a verse like Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the last day He will stand upon the earth. Jesus is a high priest who can empathize with my infirmities. How long, O Lord? Friend, listen. Christ is there in your waiting. You know what you want. He knows what you need. How bad is it? It's the second question. How long, O oh Lord? How bad is it? Um, Friday, my wife and I went to Pittsburgh for an event in the morning. We left early to get ahead of the traffic. <laughs> yeah, right. We had, we had people in the car with us and we, we took the parkway and got toward the tunnels and had that conversation everyone has in their car going toward the tunnels in rush hour traffic. Why do people slow down at the tunnels? Keep moving! There's no engineer can, can solve that problem. It's just human nature to slow down. Isn't it like that with traffic, though? How bad is it? Right? I mean, we're always wondering that. Don't, if you're a native Pittsburgher, don't you love it when someone moves into the area and they're like, yeah, I'm going down to Pittsburgh, going to head down there like 9 a.m. on a weekday. want to go through the tunnels. Sounds exciting. Okay. You enjoy that. How bad is it? Don't you wish that question was kind of only applying to traffic? How bad is it? Man, for this guy, it was bad. It was bad. Verse 3, 
this man who came and met Jesus, this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. How bad is it? This guy was possessed, oppressed, harassed. You want to know how bad it was? This guy, the sum of his life was possession, oppression, harassment. That's who he was. The maniac madman living in the tombs. And a couple guys from town go out every five years and try to tie him down, and it never works because he's, he's crazy. He's full of demons, possessed, oppressed, harassed. How bad is it? Did you notice the language as we read, no one, not even, had often, no one? This man was uncontrollable, uncontrollable. One writer notes that possibly when he comes and falls before Jesus, it is the involuntary submission or the, of the demons and the longing of the man. So at work in his conflicted, demon-possessed life is the, the demons coming involuntarily and him longing to be delivered. How bad is it? It's bad. How bad is it? This man's problem was extensive and complicated. It was bad. How bad? How bad is it for you? Maybe that's the question you're asking today. How bad is it? Because you're waiting for a diagnosis that is probably going to be bad when you thought it would be good. Um, maybe, maybe you're on the cusp of a relationship that is about to end badly and you thought it would go really well. Maybe... Maybe the consequences of that bad decision you made all the way back there that you thought that will never affect me has finally caught up to you, and it's bad. How bad is it? The Apostle Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. He writes, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about the problems we experienced. It's bad in the province of Asia, we were under great pressure. It was far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Hey, Paul, how bad is it? It's bad. It's bad. For this possessed, oppressed, harassed man, it was bad. What do we do when the question is how bad is it? The Apostle Paul from that verse, 2 Corinthians 1.8, goes on to say this, but, but, after he says, I'm under great pressure, it's far beyond my ability to endure, I am despairing of life itself, but this happens so that I might rely not on myself, but on God who raises the dead. 
He, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. Christian friend, when, when you are on the front end of the question, how long, O oh Lord? Or how bad is it? If you're possessed, oppressed, harassed, God is there. And I know you know what you want. God knows what you need. How much is this going to cost me? It's the third question. How long, O oh Lord? <clears throat> Jesus, when are you going to come across to the opposite side, to me, and step out of your boat into the soil of my sorrow? How long, O oh Lord? How bad is it? I think it's bad. You know, what you, you know what you want. God knows what you need. Third question. How much is this going to cost me? Verse 11. One commentator notes, this is a bizarre negotiation with the demons about where they will go. I like what one commentator said. Needless to say, this is not an everyday event in the Gerasene region. Really? Let's read it. 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And by the way, if this is your first time in church and this is where you're starting, this is the deep end of the pool. <clears throat> he gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. How much is this going to cost me? I know what I want. God knows what I need. But friend, how much is that going to cost? If you're here and, and you follow Jesus Christ, listen, he, Christ died on the cross for us. God sent his son and it is the free gift of God's grace to repent of our sins and trust what Christ did on the cross for us. That's a free gift. But listen, when, when, God, when we begin to follow Jesus, he begins to meddle in our lives and say, I know what you need. And he wants to rearrange some things. Some things. How, how is God... How is God creating some disequilibrium in your life? What is your herd of pigs to which you are saying to God, God, don't take that. God, you better take this. And God is saying, you know what you want. I know what you need. How much will this cost me? Prosperity. It costs that. One writer has helped us a little bit because I don't know about you, but I can't imagine, I can't imagine anything running headlong into a lake, but it's really hard to imagine 2,000 pigs. But one writer said it's like imagine the car dealership in your town. All the demons go into, car, into the cars and they drive off the lot and are all smashed. The owner's what? Not happy. This was their prosperity. 
And the, the tenders of these pigs say, man, here's my week. I get up, I go out, I watch the pigs, I come home. I eat dinner, I go to bed, I do the same thing. I go out on the weekends, then Monday it's back to the pigs. That's my prosperity. That's my security. That's another thing. Listen, I like this routine. And into that, Jesus throws tremendous disequilibrium. How much will this cost for these townspeople, for these pig herders? It costs their prosperity. It costs their security. This is interesting. Some writers even say it costs the identity of the townspeople. So some writers make much of the fact that this guy, this guy who was possessed by demons, he was kind of the guy who everyone poured their identity on like, well, listen, my family screwed up, but have you ever heard of the guy in the tombs? He's crazy. He's possessed by demons, and no, no matter how haywire things are in my family, we're not that guy. So there's always the security and the identity of, well, I'm, always, I'm not that person. And it's as if Jesus comes into their community and upsets everything by saying, this man will be made whole. How much is that going to cost? Prosperity, security, identity. Christian friend, follower of Jesus today, what is the thing in your life where, where you know what you want but God knows what you need and he is saying to you, this might cost you and you're saying, God, you can't take that. God, I'm not keeping this. How much will this cost me? What will it cost when you come to see Jesus? Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 15. When they came to Jesus, see that? When they came to Jesus, you know what that made me think of when I read that? Remember in John 4, 29, woman at the well? Remember she goes back into the town, and what does she say to the people? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Would, would you want to go see that guy? <laughs> I, I think we read that story a lot of times like, yes, I'm in. I don't know if I am in. How's this going to work? Like, is everybody going to hear? Is it just you and me, Jesus? In some ways, I can relate to this crowd a lot better. When they came to see Jesus, they said, we're afraid. You need to leave. Come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. How much will that cost you? How much, how much will it cost when you say, I know what I want, and God says, I know what you need. I know everything you've ever done. And he comes to you and he's, he's right now creating disequilibrium in your heart and saying, I want that. I want you to keep this. I know what I want. God knows what I need. What will it cost you when you come to see Jesus? That thing you have? That fear that rules you? some habit that you refuse to give up? How much will it cost? How should I live now? It's the last question. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to come across the lake? Step out of your boat into the soil of my sorrow, God. How long? How bad is it? How bad is it? How much is this going to cost me? And finally, how should I live now? To me, verse 18 is a very tender passage of Scripture. 
18 to 20, as Jesus was getting into the boat, notice something. How did the story begin? Jesus got out of a boat. Now he's getting back into the boat. Interesting. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Of course he did. Of course he did. Jesus, you're, you saved my life. I was, I was the guy in the tombs. The identity of this community was on me. Like, he's the one with the demons. We're not as bad as him. I want to come with you. Jesus, think of my story. It's like a Billy Graham crusade. I'm your guy with the testimony. I'll talk before you do. I'll warm up the crowds. There's so many people need to hear this. This guy knew what he wanted. He knew how he wanted to serve. I get that. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Are you serious, Jesus? Are you serious? Back to the people who were like, what? You're the guy who ran around naked in the cemetery? Just wait a while. Wait a couple weeks. He'll go nuts again and he'll be out in the cemetery and we'll be sending teenage boys out to try to tie him down again. Just wait. Nobody's listening to this guy. How should I live now? I know how I want to serve. God knows how I need to serve. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. How do you want me to serve him now, God? And all the people were amazed. The story begins with Jesus getting out of a boat and ends with Jesus getting into a boat. Maybe the word for you today from Jesus is this. Jesus is saying to you, listen, I'm with you, but I'm leaving and you're staying. You Maybe you know what you want, and as it were, whatever that ministry is, whatever that service is, whatever that thing that's not threatening is, you're saying to God, I'd like to get in the boat with you and travel around. That's cool. And God is saying, you're not getting in the boat. I'm leaving. I'm with you. I'm leaving. You're staying. That's how you need to serve. I know how I want to serve. God knows how I need to serve. Which questions do you find yourself asking today? How long, O oh Lord? When will you come across the lake? Step out of your boat into the soil of my sorrow. How bad is it? <clears throat> How much is this going to cost me? How should I live now? In the mid-1960s, those are all questions my mom and dad were asking. They knew what they wanted. They wanted a miracle for my sister. Within three months, my sister died. That's not what God knew that they needed. The deliverance, the healing of my sister. And I don't, I don't know what the treatment is now for aplastic anemia, but it was much more rudimentary in the 60s, I'm sure. And, and my mom and dad went wherever they could go to find the treatment that would help and financially destroyed my parents. Just, just trying to find that treatment. Just trying to take care of their daughter. Didn't work. She died five years old. Some people, some of us, 
When God says this is what you need, we run from God or we run to God, right? Well, by the grace of God, my, my parents ran to God. And, and in not, very, not very long afterwards, my dad said, I feel the pull of God to go back to college and think about ministry, becoming a pastor. Out of the ashes of the death of my sister. So in the late 60s, early 70s, he's wiped out financially anyway. He packs it up, sells the house, goes to Bible college. As like a 30-year-old. So my parents are in their 80s now, and they are not super spiritual people. You want to make my mom cry? Ask her about Marie. She's, she, my mom's 80. And if you follow my mom on Facebook in July when we celebrate my sister's birthday and the anniversary of her death, my mom will have pictures of my sister and she'll talk about my sister and it's still very emotional for her. But I have lived, as it were, in this laboratory with, with my parents saying, listen, we know what we wanted, but God knew what we needed. And the miracle... <laughs> looked very different than we thought it would look. But God delivered nonetheless because he knows what we need. Listen, in all those decades of my dad being a pastor, when he walks into a room to help a family who's lost someone, how, how well do you think he connects? Pretty well. I can tell you amazing stories about how God has used the testimony of my sister's death to help my mother and father minister to people. They knew what they wanted, a miracle for Marie. God knew what they needed. Friend, today, I know you know what you want. God knows what you need in the tough and the tender questions of life. How long, O oh Lord? How bad is it? How much will this cost me? How should I live now? God knows what we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a remarkable story. And uh, we, thank you for, we thank you for all sides of this story, God. Letting us see, in some ways, what's hard in this story. That we are more like, more like pig tenders. And we We'd much rather keep that herd of swine than we would to say, okay, God, take that. Lord, I pray if there's one here wrestling with the cost, their prosperity, their security, their identity, that they would give that to you. Lord, I pray in each of our hearts, we would trust you in the waiting, in the wondering, in the serving. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you are always working. Father, I pray we would trust you for what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.